Gresham College presents Reproductive Technologies and the Birth of a Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority by Baroness Deitch, DBE, Gresham Professor of Law. Good evening, everybody. I have prepared for you a handout, which I hope will help you through the scientific side of this and will be a souvenir for you to take away and also a foretaste of things to come. I'm not going to use PowerPoint because I prefer to look you straight in the eye and have you perhaps look me straight in the eye rather than at the screen. But there it is, you've got the handout. And sometimes you'll need it for diagrams and so on. Why are so many of you interested in this topic? There are practical and ideological reasons that have brought you here tonight. The practical ones are that infertility affects one in seven couples, not counting the application of IVF techniques to single and same-sex would-be parents. The facts are set out on the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority website, where you can see that the causes of infertility are multiple. One third of them are due to male factors. A quarter are unexplained. The rest are female and a mixture of the two. Of course, one only knows about the couples who seek medical assistance. There may well be very many more who have difficulty in conceiving but don't seek help. The causes? To understand them and to reduce the incidence of infertility means looking beyond mere medical factors in men and women to social issues. Rising infertility is attributed to more sexually transmitted diseases that have had damaging effects, for example, chlamydia, and possibly environmental factors. But the rise in infertility is more readily explicable as a feature of modern family living. Women marry much later, for example, in their 30s, and may not start trying for a baby, even then, because they believe implicitly that IVF can achieve fertility for them if the worst comes to the worst. They may have difficulty finding a permanent partner at that age, having pursued careers and contraception before reaching their 30s. The rise in infertility has come as a surprise to the 1960s generation of women who were the first to be led to believe that they could control their fertility absolutely because of legalized abortion and efficient contraception. They thought they could choose fertility, infertility at almost any stage of life at will. As more of them and of later generations of women entered higher education and careers, they postponed childbirth to older ages finding there was a shortage of childcare facilities, a lack of family-friendly policies in the workplace, and that men are still unwilling to shoulder their fair share of the burdens of parenthood. Divorce and remarriage have also led to older childbearing. Fertility drops quite dramatically at the age of 38 or so. We can all think of a few notable exceptions which may coincide with the age at which a woman who has been divorced remarries. There's little alternative to IVF because the number of babies available for adoption has dropped. Insufficient information is given to young people about the reasons for infertility, certainly when you compare this with the amount of information given about control of conception. 
This is a topic that I will explain and explore later in connection with feminism and fertility. Our understanding of infertility, both medical and social, is relatively recent and still growing. Now, if you look at the first slide on your handout, this year sees the 30th birthday of the first IVF baby, Louise Brown. Her parents were a young couple from Bristol who had spent nine years trying to conceive because Mrs. Brown had a blockage in her fallopian tubes. This meant that she had eggs, but that they were unable to travel to the uterus in order to be fertilized in the normal way. Dr. Robert Edwards and Mr. Patrick Septo were the doctors who were researching at that time on fertilizing eggs outside the body. The Browns were the first couple to succeed, and Louise was born on the 25th of July, 1978, almost, well, 30 years almost to the day. She subsequently had a sister, also by IVF, and both girls have recently given birth naturally to their own children. That fact is reassuring because the fear was always that even although the IVF technique seemed to succeed, there would be future abnormalities to deal with. If you look at slides two and three, the birth of Louise was met with enormous press interest all over the world. Thousands of couples immediately signed up for the same treatment, but the Catholic Church promptly objected, drawing battle lines that are evident today. Reporters besieged the hospital in which the birth took place. A bomb scare, perhaps started by reporters hoping to get a glimpse of the mother, cleared the maternity building. Today we tend to treat IVF as almost routine, but it is salutary to remember the headlines then. It was thought that IVF children might be damaged or deformed because of lack of some early essential ingredients of the mother's womb, or they might be different in some terrible, shocking way. Then there were the ethical concerns about conception outside the body and treatments of the embryo, concerns which are even stronger today than they were 30 years ago. Millions around the world believe that the soul enters the body at the moment of conception and that it is wrong to interfere with nature and wrong to tamper in any way with the embryo, let alone do research on it or store it in a freezer. These beliefs are the other reason why you are here this evening. IVF goes to the heart of many of our most important beliefs and traditions about the commencement and sanctity of life, about the nature of the family and marriage, the soul, dignity, autonomy, the difference between humans and animals, our control over the nature of the next generation, and indeed the purpose of life and childbearing. There are no more profound debates to be had in any other topic. And they all started with a British success in achieving fertilization of the egg by sperm in the laboratory. Britain has enjoyed a further success in this field by creating a climate in which embryo research is regulated and supported. Britain encouraged the use of that research, not only to create babies, but to cure life-threatening diseases. 
My theme throughout my lectures is that from the day of Louise's Brown, of Louise Brown's birth to this, the story of IVF is one of a struggle for dominance, a struggle arising from the fascination and power of the techniques involved. Any government or church will want to have their say, indeed to control the ways in which the next generation may be born and shaped. And this is what is presented by the scientific development of infertility medicine. Because of the worldwide interest in the first IVF baby, a feeling arose that the government should take some action to demonstrate that scientists were not simply to be allowed to run amok. If you look at the next slide, four. There followed a move typical of how the British government handles complex issues. The establishment of a committee of the great and the good charged with considering the future. It was chaired by the philosopher Mary Warnock, whose picture I've given you. Its remit was to consider what policies and safeguards should be put in place and the social, legal and ethical implications of the developments. The Warnock Report was issued in 1985 and in my view remains to this day the wisest, most pragmatic, far-sighted and influential report of its kind for this and other countries. It is remembered best for the comment that, I quote, people generally want some principles or other to govern the development and use of the new techniques. There must be some barriers that are not crossed, some limits fixed, beyond which people must not be allowed to go. A society which had no inhibiting limits especially in the areas of birth and death, of the setting up of families and the valuing of human life, would be a society without moral scruples. And this nobody wants, end of quote. The Warnock Report laid the foundation of the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act 1990, which brought into being the now famous HFEA. This body of half lay people and half scientists has the flexibility and authority to make decisions on a case-by-case -case basis as reproductive medicine advances. It set up the most extensive database of its kind in the world, recording the treatments and the gamete donors. The HFEA monitors all the laboratories and clinics carrying out research and treatment. It gives advice to patients and donors and to the government if required and it approves new treatments and research using embryos. One should note the combination of practical and philosophical tasks. I discovered during my chairmanship that it is highly salutary for an ethical body to be faced with the need to make immediate decisions involving real individuals and their health. For on a Friday afternoon, it always was a Friday afternoon, the telephone would ring and there would be an inquiry from a surgeon about to operate, say, on a small child with cancer. Was it permissible, he would say, to store a slice of the baby's testicular tissue in order to safeguard it from the fertility-destroying effects of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, so that one day there might be a chance that the little patient would be restored to fertility by having the preserved testicular tissue re-implanted. 
no time to call together the body for discussions over months on this new technique. The answer has to be given by interpreting the law as it stands. The answer was yes. This differentiates the HFEA from the many ethical bodies in the field of embryology all over the world, most notably in the USA. Those are bodies that discuss, study, and report, but do not have the executive power to make decisions nor to ensure that their recommendations are carried out. In retrospect, it was a clear advantage for Britain to have enacted legislation at the outset before anyone knew what complexities lay ahead. In many other countries, a lack of early control over IVF meant that disagreements over controversial issues had a chance to become entrenched, making it harder to formulate research permissive or even any regulatory legislation. Italy, for example, went from being totally unregulated to a situation of very restrictive prohibitions based on the firm religious beliefs of the majority of the population. In 2004, embryo freezing and research were banned in Italy and IVF limited to heterosexual couples. There are those who say that we are over-regulated or that there should be no interference at all with people's rights to reproduce. Interference can be justified on the utilitarian ground of preventing harm to others, including the future baby. The dangers of uncontrolled medicine have occasionally been evident, and no amount of compensation can make up for ruined lives and reputations. Examples abound. The Italian doctor prosecuted for selling sperm to countless clinics from a donor affected by HIV and hepatitis. The American doctor who fled to South America after the discovery that his clinic had deliberately donated embryos without the donor's knowledge or consent. At the opposite extreme, governments can simply introduce blanket bans, thereby saving themselves from the discomfort of dealing with highly complex matters that have no obvious solutions. Such approaches may claim intellectual or religious clarity, but in reality they often represent a kind of intellectual cowardice or antipocrisy. They don't allow for developments both in science and society, and they can ride roughshod over the interests of patients who have strong needs to be fulfilled. For various reasons, embryo research treatment of unmarried couples and egg donation are each banned in some European countries, depending on religious and cultural beliefs. The next slide, some reasons. Regulation is responsible for safety and good practice. It gives clinicians a shield against accusations of malpractice and gives researchers a haven of safety, provided they act within the guidelines drawn up by the HFEA under its statutory powers. Regulation has reassured the public and reduced, if not eliminated, commercialism. I once met the Queen at a reception. I shouldn't really tell you this. 
and I was wearing a badge that said Chairman of the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. And uh, she came to the group I was in and she stopped. There was an intake of breath around me. And the Queen said, what a good idea to keep science in step with the public. And I thought, yes, that's it. That is exactly it. The Queen had cottoned onto this, the main function of the HFEA. The HFEA has enabled this small country to speak with a large voice and impact in the world debates on these issues. And it's caused each and every player on the IVF scene to think about, justify, and monitor his or her research and actions, knowing they will be visible. The next slide, the downsides of regulation are that it can be slow and expensive, as Lord Winston keeps complaining, and a barrier to progress, although not so, judging by the record of scientists in this country. It has meant that there are constant legal challenges to HFEA decisions, for they all have to be within the law. And every disappointed doctor or patient can invoke judicial review and human rights standards. It has meant constant media spotlight and battles fought in the press over public approval or otherwise. There is a struggle between politicians, churchmen, scientists, clinicians, and the public for dominance. But British regulation has enabled progress to be made in tandem with public acceptance and in a safe zone for the practitioners for 30 years, now to be continued with a fresh piece of legislation. In these 30 years, IVF reproductive medicine has gone from simple infertility to matters of convenience and preference. For example, the insemination of older women past the age of menopause, posthumous insemination, choice of sex of the baby, egg freezing to prolong and protect female fertility, import and export of gametes, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for the purpose of eliminating inherited diseases, and then also to achieve the birth of a sibling with blood that might save an older sick child. Then cloning and stem cell work that may give us renewed tissues and the ability to live forever. What are the various techniques? They're illustrated in the handouts accompanying this lecture. Briefly, and starting with the most straightforward, donor insemination, which is a way of supplying sperm when the man cannot for whatever reason. In IVF practice, it may be the husband or a known or unknown donor sperm that is used. The procedure is very well known in animal breeding and has been practiced on humans for centuries. It is, of course, open to unethical practices, and there are stories of early infertility doctors using their own sperm on anesthetized patients. It's also the, the method of choice for lesbians with helpful male friends. Much legal thinking has been addressed to the question whether it amounts to adultery. And the general answer is that it does not, because there's no physical penetration. But there might be religious objections to the use of sperm of a man who is not the husband of the woman. 
If you go back to the third slide, there's a diagram there of IVF, which is used where there's difficulty in eggs reaching the uterus, where they may be inseminated in the normal way. You've got to somehow bypass the blocked fallopian tubes or unexplained infertility. Under anesthetic, eggs are removed from a woman who's followed a hormonal drug regime in order to maximize the number produced. Difficulties with this I will discuss in a later lecture. The eggs are mixed with the husband's or stranger's sperm, which might have been produced at the clinic by him or have been in storage. The resulting embryos, assuming the process succeeds, are allowed to grow for a couple of days, and the best and healthiest ones selected for direct insertion into the womb. The law restricts the number used to one or two. Any surplus embryos may be frozen for future use, donated to other couples or to research at the written requests of the patients. The eighth slide, a story there about frozen embryos, which may be kept for 10 years under the law, but it's asserted that they may be frozen for much longer without deterioration. And there are stories of babies born from embryos or sperm frozen 20 years earlier. The possibilities are immense. Soldiers going to war or astronauts may freeze their sperm in case they don't return. In a small window of opportunity, sperm can be removed from dead men. Eggs may be frozen and thus preserve for decades, as you see in the next slide, a young woman's fertility for a postmenopausal woman. Especially relevant in cases of cancer treatment by radiotherapy or chemotherapy. Frozen embryos may only be used with the consent of the man and the woman, and plenty of problems present themselves when divorce intervenes between creation of the embryo and the desire to use it, of which more later. The next slide illustrates ICSI, which stands for Intracytoplasmic Sperm Injection. This technique has proved particularly successful for men with no or little sperm and was approved under my chairmanship after doubts about the safety of immature sperm were resolved. It, it involves the removal of sperm from the scrotum in conditions where ejaculation is not possible or where the genital tract is blocked or the man has undergone a vasectomy. If he's unconscious, then sperm can be removed by inserting an electric baton in the rectum and using current to force ejaculation. I hope this doesn't put you off. That's what they do to dying and dead men, but we'll come back to that. Then, however obtained, a chosen single healthy sperm is injected straight into the egg by a needle bypassing the normal penetration process that is undertaken when a sperm reaches an egg naturally. This process enables a naturally infertile man to have children. If sons, they may suffer from the same problem. It has raised fears of abnormalities because there are processes undergone when a sperm slowly penetrates the outer 
shell of an egg naturally, which are not present when it's injected with a needle straight into the egg. Next slide. PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, is a tool developed from the techniques I've already described, which is being used for the prevention or avoidance of disease, especially inherited disease. It is PGD that first gave rise to the fear summed up in the phrase, designer babies. Next slide. The embryo, however created, is biopsied. That is, after it's grown for a couple of days, one cell is removed from about eight and examined. Various genes, especially inherited ones, such as those for cancer or cystic fibrosis, may be detected at that stage. And if the parents are willing, the badly affected embryos will be allowed to perish and only the healthy ones used. This technique may be used in conjunction with tissue typing, called HLA typing, where parents desire a sibling for a sick child that they already have because the new baby's tissues might match and then cells could be removed from the umbilical cord of the new baby and used in an attempt to cure the older child of a fatal disease. More of that later. Next slide, cloning. Dolly, there's Dolly, you remember Dolly. Dolly brought cloning to public attention when she was cloned in 1996. Although there were claims beforehand and later of more extreme achievements, this is the first properly documented cloning of a mammal. She is said to look like a happy sheep. I don't know how one knows. That's what Dr. Edwards said to me. She died young, but that's another story. A clone is an entity that is genetically identical to another mammal. Children aren't clones because each parent contributes half of the child's genetic makeup. Twins are clones of each other, born from a split egg, but they still are composed, each of them, of equal contributions from the genes of mother and father and are not identical to one parent, but to each other. It's forbidden by law to split a naturally created embryo in order to have twins. The next slide shows you how Dolly was created. You can go over this more slowly at home. An egg cell <coughs> was obtained from a donor, sheep, and the nucleus, which I always imagine as a non-scientist to be like the yolk of a chicken's egg. We all know what the yolk looks like. The nucleus, the yolk was removed. The nucleus of the cell of the person or animal who's going to be cloned is inserted into the empty white of the egg in its place. The new yolk and the white are fused together by an electric shock which causes the egg to think it's been fertilized and to grow. When I lecture to schoolboys, I tell them that they may think they have a lifetime ahead of romance, mortgages, marriage, but I'm sorry to say, they can be replaced by a little electric shock. And it's quite worrying. It's one of the reasons we don't like cloning. Men can be replaced 
by a little electric shock, and I'm not in favour of that. It is illegal to allow such an embryo to grow in the womb. But for research purposes, specifically stem cell work, individual cells may be removed from the growing cloned embryo and become objects of research. It may be that because they are totipotent, capable of all sorts of development, they may one day, these cells, be coaxed into growing new brain, heart, etc. cells for the person who's been cloned, as you see in slide 15, the next one. And because these cells match being cloned, they won't be rejected in the way that transplanted organs are today in medicine. Of this, more later. The fascination and power contained in embryology and infertility medicine is such that it is, and for a long time, has been a battleground for domination between the various forces involved. This was brought home to me when I entered a few years ago. I entered a room in the Palace of Westminster to give evidence to a House of Commons select committee on the topic. And the opening question from an MP was, who do you think you are playing God? I was then chair of the HFEA. The playing of God has been resumed now by parliamentarians. For in this year, the 30th anniversary of the birth of Louise Brown, Parliament has passed, or very nearly passed, a new bill to replace the one of 1990. The new bill of 2008 gives legal sanction to mixed animal-human embryos to pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and savior siblings where there is a risk of serious disability while still banning cloning and sex selection. The new bill preserves the framework already in place for regulation and for stem cell work. It enters the field of social engineering with the abolition of the consideration of the need for a father in the welfare assessment of women to be treated. The government has removed the phrase that a baby needs a father. The new bill also provides for the registration of two women as two parents on a donor-conceived child's birth certificate. The final assent to this bill has been delayed some weeks because of the continuing controversy about the abortion time limits, which most unfortunately are also contained within the ambit of the bill. Although abortion has nothing to do with IVF and embryology. The new bill this year maintains the internationally agreed prohibition that only a properly fertilized egg may be placed in a woman, not a cloned one. The bill permits the mixing for research of human and animal gametes, recognizing the shortage of human eggs for research purposes. There is a case for saying that with the new social engineering provisions, as I call them, the wise maxim of Mary Warnock, that the public need to know that there are some limits to what may be done, 
some barriers that should not be crossed has been abandoned. And overall, the regime of the 2008 bill is a less ethical one than the 1990 Act. It enshrines scientific advance, which is good, but in a way that leaves more scope for judicial challenge than was the case under the 1990 Act drafting. It pursues current anti-discrimination aims by placing the interests of would-be parents over those of the child. And it sacrifices the truth principle that should underlie birth registration. In practice, nevertheless, it does little more than confirm every single decision taken by the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority between 1991 and 2008 under the discretion afforded to it by the 1990 Act. The new bill also makes a statement that British lawmakers recognize, embrace, and control the tremendous advances made in alleviating infertility and disease by our clinicians and embryologists, and that progress in this field will remain as controlled and thoughtful as it has been in the past. Britain should be proud of its achievements in recognizing that the science that can give a baby to an infertile couple can also be extended to saving lives. I'm going to stop there in order to allow you to ask questions. And I commend to you the remaining slides, which I won't go through today, but if you come back, as I hope you will, I will be raising all the issues that you see there and indeed providing you with more slides. So that's a foretaste of things to come. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk